You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone rolled into its second season, the popularity of the show was really starting to grow. Rod Serling remembers, We hit approximately 500 letters a week, we have fan clubs in 31 states, and now we have an average of 50 story ideas submitted to us each week from people who dig fantasy, the unusual, and the imaginative. The book Stories from the Twilight Zone was selling well, a comic book had been released, and the term The Twilight Zone was starting to become a part of pop culture's zeitgeist. Buck Houghton may have memories of the show nearing cancellation, and the second series did suffer from financial setbacks, but it seemed like The Twilight Zone was at an all-time high. To kick off the second season, Rod Serling revisited an idea that he'd used for the first season pilot, the idea of being alone, only this time he was using a real-life mystery as his starting point. This is Africa, 1943. War spits out its violence overhead, and the sandy graveyard swallows it up. Her name is King Knight, B-25 medium bomber, 12th Air Force. On a hot, still morning, she took off from Tunisia to bomb the southern tip of Italy. An errant piece of flak tore a hole in a wing tank, and like a wounded bird, this is where she landed. Not to return on this day or any other day. First broadcast on the 30th September 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Buzz Kulik. Now this is the first time Kulik had visited the Twilight Zone, but he was like a lot of directors at the time working on the same sort of shows. Shows like Gunsmoke, Playhouse 90, Rawhide, Perry Mason etc. He directed a total of 9 episodes of the Twilight Zone, so we'll be seeing his name crop up again throughout the 2nd, 3rd and 4th season. He did direct some feature movies, but he returned to television to direct TV movies, which is why nothing really leaps off the page of his IMDb resume. Although according to what I've read online, the 1971 Brian song starring James Caan and Billy Dee Williams is a very well praised movie. Now, the story for King Nine Will Not Return came from the real life mystery of a B-24 Liberator bomber, Lady Be Good, which disappeared without a trace during the Second World War. The plane was to bomb Naples in 1943, along with 13 others, but due to high winds it was separated from the rest of the squadron when it was the last to take off. The bad weather also meant that the mission wasn't really a success, so Lady Be Good flew back to the base in Libya, only they never made it back. From the report since its disappearance, it seemed the automatic direction finder on the bomber was broken and they flew over the airbase, failing to see the flares. With no radio contact from the crew, it was assumed that the Lady Be Good had crashed into the Mediterranean Sea, killing everyone on board. However, in 1958, the wreckage of the plane was spotted in the Libyan desert. Evidence showed that the nine-man crew had bailed out of the plane, and they were later discovered in various stages throughout 1960. Eight of the nine bodies were discovered, all in various locations, and 
It was theorised later that the crew jumped out of the plane and split up into two teams to find help. The ninth body still has not been found and it's presumed that his parachute didn't open and he died from the fall. So there are two aspects to this story that I imagine piqued the interest of Rod Serling. The first being a plane that mysteriously disappeared, but the second is perhaps the more intriguing part and the part that is yet to be explained. Although the plane crashed in 1943 and was discovered in 1958, it was immaculately preserved with working guns, a working radio, and even a flask of tea that was perfectly drinkable. It was almost as if the plane had been frozen in time, or maybe even jumped ahead. I'm not sure for certain if this was the catalyst for Serling's idea behind King Nine Will Not Return, but the idea of a plane going missing in time would be explored again in the Twilight Zone episode, The Odyssey of Flight 33. So maybe we'll come back to this idea again. Now, as we've mentioned before, King Nine Will Not Return bears an incredible resemblance to the pilot episode, Where Is Everybody? The two feature a single man waking up in a strange environment and trying to discover where they are. The two differ slightly of course as King Nine features voiceover rather than the clumsy monologue of Where Is Everybody? And it also has that supernatural element Serling felt was missing from the pilot, a fact that he fixed later on in the novelization of the story. When you look at the episode side by side as openings for a season, it almost feels as though King Nine Will Not Return is Serling's way of righting the wrongs he felt he did in Where Is Everybody? remember now. At least I remember parts of it. Wing tank hit, lost fuel all the way over, fell behind, went off course and bellied in. And the crew... What about the crew? Hey, did they bail out? Did I order them to bail out? No. No, I didn't. We all wrote it in, all of us. Me. Me. I'm James Embry, captain. Yeah, yeah, that's who I am. Uh, Blake, co-pilot, Kransky radio operator and waste gunner. Jimenez, navigator. Connors, he was a tail gunner. Klein, he was the upper turret gunner. Now, let's see, who else, who else? Captain James Embry was played by Robert Cummings, and this would be his only visit to the Twilight Zone, and it came about because Cummings wanted Rod Serling to write a script for his own show, The Bob Cummings Show. Robert Cummings had a very storied film and television career, and most interestingly about him, he basically lied his way into the industry. Feeling that Broadway directors wouldn't take on a local boy from Missouri, and given the demand for British actors in the early 30s, he posed as an Englishman under the name Blade Stanhope Conway, which scored him a successful number of shows. He would apply the same tactic again when he moved to Hollywood in 1934, acting as a rich Texan called Bruce Hutchins, which landed him the role of Jim Preston in The Virginia Judge in 1935. Eventually he went by his real name and achieved stardom in 1939, starring alongside Deanna Durbin in Three Smart Girls Grow Up. He would go on to star in many films throughout his career, notching up over 105 credits to his name. Perhaps his best known movies being Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder and Saboteur. He was a prolific TV actor and would star in My Living Doll with Judy Newmar in 1964 to 1965. He sadly passed away in 1990 at the age of 80, 
with his last active credit being the host of a televised 15th anniversary celebration of Walt Disney World at Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Colour. There is a layer of tragedy to Richard Cummings' life, however, with him being a victim of the infamous Dr. Feelgood, Max Jacobson. But on more lighter notes, Robert Cummings was perhaps best known outside of his work for his ageless features. The man was born in 1910, so he would have been around 50 or nearing that age when he started in King Nine Will Not Return, but he really doesn't look a day over 30. The story of King Nine Will Not Return may loosely be based on the real-life mystery of Lady Be Good, but there is a lot of truth behind Robert Cummings playing the role of Captain James Embry. In 1942, as the US was gearing to join World War II, Cummings joined the United States Army Air Corps, where he served as a flight instructor. After the war, he achieved the rank of captain, which will explain why he took to this role so well. King Nine calling Firefly. Mayday, Mayday. King Nine calling Firefly. Mayday, Mayday. King Nine calling Firefly. Come in, please. King Nine calling Firefly. Mayday, Mayday. Come in, please. Now, in terms of story, there really isn't much to say. Avery wakes up and discovers he's in the middle of the desert, alone, with no memory of how he got there. His ship has crashed and his crew is nowhere to be seen. The rest of the episode, like where is everybody, is just Avery walking around the wreckage questioning where his crew is before the final reveal. Usually I would save my final analysis for the end of the episode, but I do need to say outright that I am not a fan of this episode. What I will say is that it's a testament to how good a writer Rod Serling was that the episode never feels boring or dragged out. He drops in enough mystery and intrigue to keep you glued to the end and Robert Cummings' performance is really great but the episode is nothing more than just okay. There's a term that the lads over at the Twilight Pone use for episodes like King Nine. That's to call it a palate cleanser. An episode to watch between other episodes if you're doing a marathon of them. In essence, King Nine Will Not Return is an ideal palate cleanser. Oh, easy now, easy now. Think about it some. Don't go off half-cocked. There are reasons, there are explanations. Crew is someplace, and, and for some reason, and I'm alone. For some reason, <laughs> everything looks tilt, but there's there's logic behind it. There's there's logic for everything. I just have to I just have to keep it cool. That's all. Think about it rationally. The main thing, the main thing I got to keep in mind is I'm responsible for this crew. I'm in charge. As far as it's within my power, I gotta keep them alive. I gotta get them out of this. I command this aircraft and I'm in charge and I'm responsible. Blake! I think this is a really Blake, is that important you? part of Embry's character and why we discover what happens to him happens to him. I have to look after my crew. He's obviously a very proud man and someone who feels very passionately about the safety and well-being of his crew looking after them as if they were his own children. There's even a moment where he sees his captain's hat on the floor and he picks it up and puts it on, as if reasserting his authority on the situation. And I think this is where the, his descent into madness really begins. It's not the loneliness or the unknowing of how he got here, but his inability to discover what happened to his crew. 
Klein! Sergeant Klein! <laughs> you incredibly stupid jerk, you! You dropped your canteen! You stupid Bronx cowboy, you! You're in the desert now, you idiot! You're gonna need water! Still have to nursemaid you guys, huh? Some crew I got here, run around the... It's not funny, boy. It's strictly not... not funny. And it's here that Embry sees Blake in the pilot's seat of the plane. But is it really him? Blake! 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 It's me, Embry! It's me, Embry, Blake! Blake! A lot of King Nine Will Not Return is filled with silence, which I think adds to the eeriness of the episode. But the score used is not taken from Bernard Herrmann's Space Suite as it was commonplace in the Twilight Zone. Instead, the score was by Fred Steiner and would be used again in future episodes. Steiner had done composing for shows like Rawhide and even some uncredited work on Gunsmoke, but he also worked on the sci-fi cornerstone Star Trek, as well as Star Trek The Next Generation and the 80s revival of The Twilight Zone, funnily enough on an episode called A Day in Beaumont. The score for this episode works beautifully and, I mean as I said there's a lot of silence, but when the score does kick in it has an incredibly ominous tone that works so much better for the episode rather than just using stock cues from their library of music. King Nine Will Not Return was filmed on location in the desert near Lone Pine, California and it's a great location as you can really feel the heat through the television. Just like you could in the season 1 episode, The Lonely, it adds a weight to the episode and Embry's further descent into madness feels genuine as you could just imagine that kind of heat. So Embry starts to question the reality of the situation, he starts to say things like he's laying in the desert with a fractured skull or he's in a bed somewhere dreaming, switching between saying things out loud and having his thoughts read out over voiceover. Usually when a show would use this method, they would have someone off camera read the lines for the actor to react to and then have them record them properly after filming was finished. But Buzz Kulik had Cummings record his voiceover prior to filming so it could be played back to him while he was on set to react to. It works really well as you can almost see Embry's thoughts being played out through his facial expressions, all the more genuine because it's his own voice. This methodology will also come into play when we come to the episode Nervous Man in a $4 Room, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Or, or maybe I tied one on and I'm in a booth at a bar someplace with a pretty girl. <laughs> oh, this one tears it. This one really tears it. <laughs> Wait till the medics get a hold of me. <laughs> They'll never let loose. <laughs> They'll have put me on tour if they ever let me out of the bin, that is. <laughs> I saw him sitting there. Yeah. And that was no hallucination. I saw Blake sitting right here. Nobody can tell me different. I saw him sitting right in this seat. Blake! Blake! Goddard's Klein! 
How about it, crew? You hear me, anybody? Hey! But Embry is seeing things, which is proved further when he finds the grave of Klein. Klein. I'm sorry. I didn't know. Rest in peace, buddy. Rest in peace, kid. It's at this point of the episode where the intrigue really kicks in. Up until this point, the only question has been about where the crew is, but we've probably all worked out by now that they're dead and Embry is hallucinating. But as he stands next to Klein's grave, some jets fly overhead. Hey, what kind of aircraft are those? Wait a minute here. What kind of... What are they? I've never seen any planes like that before. I've never seen any jets. Jets? Jet aircraft? How do I know about jet aircraft? This is 1943. There's no such thing as jet aircraft. But I know about it. I know about jet aircraft. F-106s, F-105s, B-58s. I know all about it. I think it's a really nice twist to the episode. As I said, I don't think there's a huge amount of mystery about where the crew is, so the introduction of the jets is a nice addition, even if it is something that isn't really built upon, because by this point, Embry has lost his mind and he just begins to maniacally laugh at the situation. <laughs> doesn't make any difference <laughs> because you're an illusion <laughs> you don't even exist <laughs> I'm dead or I'm knocked out or I'm off in limbo someplace <laughs> oh I'm unconscious. <laughs> or I'm cracked up in some army base. <laughs> some teeny weeny little ward. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this really is where Robert Cummings shines in the episode. He's great throughout, but it's in these moments of pure madness where he really gets to go all out. He brilliantly changes from sane to insane like a light switch, and it really intensifies the emotion of the episode. And, as Fred Steiner's score kicks in again, he sees his crew standing on a hill mound, smiling and happy, only it's another illusion of his mind. Fellas, please. Clyde. Blake. Kransky. Phantom. 
Everything's a phantom. There isn't a thing. Not a single thing that's real. Oh, God. Oh, God, what's happening here? What's happening? Won't you let me in on it? Oh, please let me in on it, God. Please let me in on it. Oh, God. Let me in on it. We then transition from Embry clutching his fist into the sand to him gripping the sheets of his bed. Captain James Embry is in a hospital. James Embry, age 41, single. Happened this morning. Went by a newsstand, looked at a paper, then went into shock. When the ambulance got there, he was almost catatonic. Uh, is this what set it off, this uh, front page? That's why I thought we ought to have a psychiatrist in on it. It's very odd. Yeah, I thought so, too. So I checked with the Pentagon in Washington, his army background. Captain Air Force Flu, B-25, Africa and Italy, 37 missions, discharged August 1943, recurrent fevers. Some suggestion of a psychological disturbance. But he was discharged before they could find out much about it. And this was his plane? His plane and his crew. Took off for Italy on what was supposed to be a routine flight. But Embry never went on that last mission. Boarded in ill and someone else flew the plane for him. Never got back. And for 17 years, he's been carrying that around in his gut. So the doctors say that seeing the headline about the plane he didn't captain put him in survivor's guilt shock. But there is one final twist in the tale. I think the worst part of it is over. At least the guilt is out in the open, and he knows what it is. That illusion certainly seemed real to him. Uh, a couple of days a week, it'll lose all reality. Doctor, these are Mr. Embry's clothes. You left them in the examination room. Put them on the desk here, nurse. I'm going back in the room. I'll take them in. Yeah, I'd like to talk to him in a day or so. Fine, I'll go check on him. Well, what's that? It's sand. There are certain episodes of The Twilight Zone that have supernatural elements that aren't fully explained or explored. The first episode that comes to mind from our previous discussions is the season one episode, And When the Sky Was Opened. And it's something that really splits Twilight Zone fans. Do we really need to have everything explained to us for the episode to be enjoyable? Or is the element of mystery and the unexplained what The Twilight Zone is all about? I'll be honest, I'm on the fence. I know that's not great analysis, but I quite like the idea of an episode giving you the piece of a puzzle and vague instructions of how to put it together, but there are episodes like King Nine Will Not Return where the answer is almost too obscure to work out. How did Embry have the sand in his shoe if he clearly didn't go back to the plane wreckage? Or was his vision and nightmare so real that he brought the sand back with him, like something out of a nightmare on Elm Street? There are far too many unanswered questions and there are no clues as to answers. As I said earlier, I don't think this is a great episode, but it's not a bad one either. The more I watch it, the more I appreciate what it is, and I think it's elevated to being better than average because of four elements coming together. Buzz Kulik's direction, Serling's script, Steiner's score, and Robert Cummings' brilliant performance. If one of those were to fail, I think I might think less of this episode than I currently do. As Fred and John put it, King Nine will not return as a good palate cleanser. Not one to put at the start of the marathon, but one to have in between two classics. Enigma buried in the sand. A question mark with broken wings that lies in silent grace as a marker in a desert shrine. 
Odd how the real consorts with the shadows, how the present fuses with the past. How does it happen? The question is on file in the silent desert. And the answer, the answer is waiting for us in the Twilight Zone. Well, I would apologise for the lateness of this podcast, but I feel it's rather redundant by this point. I always knew I'd be late on a couple of episodes, but I never thought it would be this long, so very sorry about that. As anyone who followed me on Twitter will have noticed, I've been very busy since going freelance, and I've just had a lot on my plate. And it also doesn't help that I keep stinging my fingers in other pies to take on more tasks. I'd also like to give a thanks to everyone who's emailed or tweeted me over the last few months, reminding me that I need to get this episode up. Uh, and also thanks to the guys at the Twilight Pwn for at least remaining consistent in the world of Twilight Zone podcasts. If you've not heard their show yet, you really should, as John and Fred are very talented guys and I highly recommend it. At least it comes out on a weekly basis. I was sent an email from Albion Heather who hosts the Quantum Leap podcast. Now, I love Quantum Leap, you know, it's, it's a really great show and it really holds up to this day. It's funny actually, I was watching an episode recently on Netflix while my girlfriend was getting ready to go out and she sat and watched it with me for a bit and she'd never seen it before but seemed to like it. I then noticed on my Netflix account that she'd actually been watching more episodes while I was out, so that shows you what a great show it is and how it still holds up. But Albie and Heather have sent me this little advert for their show and I was thinking recently about expanding out the community of this podcast with adverts from other podcast creators. And don't worry, I'm not going to be having adverts from Squarespace or Audible or anything like that, but if you do have a podcast you want to promote on the show, drop me an email at luke@thetwilightzonenetwork.com and I'll see if I can get it played on the air. Hello, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And we do the Quantum Leap Podcast. It can be found at quantumleappodcast.com and also on iTunes. We are starting at the beginning of Quantum Leap and going through all the episodes. This is my first time watching and Albie has seen them during their original run. In each podcast, we talk about the overall thoughts of each episode. We do an episode recap if you haven't seen them in a while, just to refresh your memory. And then we do a detailed plot discussion. And we also have some great interviews. Scott Bakula, I remember being very, very uh, generous of spirit and very, very kind to his fellow actors. It was my first kiss ever, ever, so I, I am getting to kiss Scott Bakula on screen. And everybody in, involved with it was just terrific. And I'm always amazed that people come up to me and remember that episode and can quote things from it that I can't even quote. So if you're a leaper... It'd be great if you came and join us. And if you've never heard of Quantum Leap, it's maybe a good time to start watching it because you have a podcast to go along with it. So please give our podcast a listen and hopefully you like us and stick around. Go to quantumleappodcast.com to listen to new episodes. Just before I hear your thoughts, I have a quick note from the website Bloody Disgusting who have a great competition for the Twilight Zone, the Fifth Dimension Limited Edition DVD box set. It's a very cool collection, and it's got all five seasons of the original series, as well as the 80s series too. It's a 41-disc set, so it's well worth a look if you hear this in time. But that's enough from me. Let's open the mailbag for Submitted for Your Approval.
This first from Benjamin Rostance, I hope I'm saying that right, who had this to say about a world of his own. Ben says, This episode is a fun one and one of my favourites from the first season. Richard Matheson has a unique way of looking at things and this short story works well within the realms of the Twilight Zone, for me at least. I remember the first time I watched it, I was young enough to draw it to its conclusion without guessing the glaringly obvious twist at the end. Finally, I have to counter this argument that Rod and the Twilight Zone have no luck with comedy. I actually do find this episode amusing. I also enjoy seeing Rod interact with one of his characters and wish they had used this to more effect in his later episodes. He also notes that King 9 is a rather boring episode, so thanks for the feedback, that's great. And yeah, Twilight Zone and comedy, it's always been something that people have gone back and forth on and I do agree with you that I think A World of His Own is one of the funnier episodes, but I wouldn't go as far as to call it a comedy classic. And finally, this piece of audio feedback from our good friend, Tom Elliott. Hey Luke, this is Tom with uh, just a few thoughts on a couple of things really. Maybe some things that have came to mind since our last chat when we were talking about uh, season one as a whole. And uh, then the first episode of season two, King Nine Will Not Return. I think first of all, um, we talked about kind of our favourites of season one, but maybe not the ones that everyone will say things like uh you know time enough at last and so on perhaps some of the some of the greats that maybe aren't as big in pop culture if you like but uh, are still just really good and i think one that i i missed out was actually mirror image um it's quite an understated episode i think so it's the kind of episode where i actually forget about it and then when i'm having a little run of Twilight Zone watching, I rediscover it and I just remember how much I actually love it. It's, like I say, it's very quite understated in its execution, you know, very quiet location with rain uh, outside the bus station instead of a soundtrack for most, if not all of it, I can't quite remember. But uh, for me, it's it's such a nightmarish episode in a lot of ways, but just uh, just executed really well and uh, definitely you know top five of season one for me I think you know I'd have to sit down and uh, see exactly what would be in that top five but I think mirror image would definitely be in there as we transition from season one to season two something that we've spoke about before that kind of occurred to me is near the end of season one in Rod Sailing's opening narrations, he starts to close the opening narration with the words in the Twilight Zone. Originally, he would do this opening narration, this opening monologue, and that would be that. And then at the end of the episode, he would close it out with something, 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 the Twilight Zone. Now, for me, that's the way I always preferred it. It was like, almost like he was posing a question to the audience or submitting something for your consideration at the very least and I know it wasn't always a question as such but he was putting something out there for you to consider and the answer in the end was always the Twilight Zone so I always preferred it when the Twilight Zone wasn't said in that opening narration I mean it's not a a deal breaker as such there's still some good opening narrations that close that way but for me I always preferred it when uh, when he he left that until the end 
And so it's been interesting watching this first episode, King Nine Will Not Return, because I thought that it had crept in uh, for good at the end of season one, because it started to uh, become a thing then. But actually, in the first episode, he doesn't close out his opening narration with the Twilight Zone. So uh, we'll see how that develops over season two and where that really becomes a, you know, a thing. As far as the episode itself goes, King Nine Will Not Return... You know, I'm not the first to say it. I'm sure you've uh, said it in your summing up of the episode. In that it's very much a kind of retread of the first episode of The Twilight Zone, Where Is Everybody? But if you look at Where Is Everybody and you think, well, what are the flaws in that episode? Well, firstly, he's walking around this town talking to himself. You know, none of us, well, most of us, uh, really go through life when we're on our own speaking aloud uh, it just doesn't happen so in King Nine Will Not Return a lot of that is internal except when he's really starting to crack under the pressure and then understandably he he will actually shout out or you know say things but all those other bits when he's just walking around trying to figure out what's going on all that's internal so you could say okay Rod Sailings looked at that and said well this could be better and he's fixed it now the second thing very famously is in where is everybody there is that element of the unknown that kind of touch of the twilight zone that isn't really there and as I mentioned way back when Sailing fixed it in the novelization of the episode when he added this unknown kind of uh, element this unexplainable element rather than unknown in the form of the cinema ticket in the character's pocket so in King Nine Will Not Return the cinema ticket is the sand in the main character's shoes so he's fixed kind of the two main flaws of it does it make for a better episode? I don't know you know I suppose technically you could say it is it's I think it's a very well done episode. I have no problems with it, but on on this rewatch, I think just having that in mind um, maybe takes something away from it for me. Like I say, there's nothing wrong with it as such, but when you can kind of see the mechanics at work, sometimes it it takes away from it a little, and I don't find it as rewatchable as it as it should be. You know, where is everybody? I don't think is an amazing Twilight Zone episode, but I can still, if I'm watching a few episodes, I can still watch it and enjoy it, uh, because it is what it is, and it is the one that did it first, whereas King Nine Will Not Return is is a retread. So the jury's out a little for me. You know, I, I like I say, I don't dislike it, but knowing where it came from, if you like, it just sort of, I don't know, maybe loses something, but uh, anyway... Uh, thanks again for having me on last time, Luke. Hope that I haven't rambled on too much this time. And, you know, I look forward to watching along with Season 2 with you. Like I said, I think it's going to be a bit of a rougher ride than Season 1, but uh, that's the way it goes. And uh, hopefully I'll send some feedback in down the line as well. Take care, mate. Bye. That's great, Tom. Thanks for that. Good shout on Mirror Image as well. That's a really, really great episode. And speaking of the rougher ride that is season two, our next up will be The Man in the Bottle. I won't promise you it'll be next week, but it'll be here with you soon. So until next time.
Bye-bye.